again and welcome back to episode 9 of the CarvaCast. And just a quick reminder, the CarvaCast is a weekly podcast, an initiative of the Carver Project. The goal of the podcast is to engage with Christian faculty in higher education and highlight their work. So we'll talk about the scholarship, some teaching, and bridge those connections between university, church, and society. My name is Penina Achayo-Laker, and I'm here with my most esteemed co-host, John Inazu. John and I are both faculty at Washington University in St. Louis and fellows with the Carver Project. Today, we're very excited to spend some time with our colleague, friend, and also Carver Project fellow, Abram, Abram Van Egan. Abram, welcome to the CarverCast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, Abram, yeah, great, great to have you here. And uh, we're excited to have our vast listening audience here to learn more about you and your work. Um, we, we like to start off with just kind of some background about how you uh, came to teaching. What was the journey and what particularly inspired you to think about a career in, in higher education? Yeah, so uh, like others on your podcast, I also am the child of a faculty member. Uh, my dad was a uh, professor of medieval history at Notre Dame for about 40 years. So I grew up in South Bend. Um, but also, I think what was also very formative for me is that the church that I went to, South Bend Christian Reformed Church, there were a lot of Notre Dame uh, professors. Uh, so George Marsden was there, Nathan Hatch was there, Al Planninga was there, Mick Detlison, Jim Vanderkam, my dad, of course, and others. And so I always just grew up with this sense that, you know, Christians are intellectuals. Um, <laughs> they work in the university, and that's a pretty good life. Uh, and I also was was drawn to um, the kinds of work that all of these these folks were doing. Uh, and so from an early age, I sort of knew that I wanted to do something along the academic line, something related to books, scholarship, learning, writing, reading, uh, something along those lines. And then the specifics of the journey took shape later. What what specifically, why don't we just back up a little bit and let people know kind of what you do and the focus and how you came to the, the passion point of, you, of your exact research today? Yeah, so I'm an English professor uh, at, at WashU, obviously. Uh, and what I do, generally speaking, is American literature. Uh, more particularly, I do early American literature and culture. And through it all, I have a kind of um, interest in the role of religion and theology in the shape of literature. So that's that's kind of where my teaching and research generally lies. And my teaching kind of spans a wide range there. I teach early American courses. I teach courses on religion and lit in the 20th century. So my teaching can be kind of all over the place. Uh, but my research is really focused in particular on, on the Puritans and their, you know, their sense of uh, literature. Um, so I have two books. Uh, the first book is a, is a book on the theology of sympathy in Puritanism and the way that that shaped their sense of community, their sense of preaching, uh, and of course their sense of literature. And then also the effect that had on some of the secular moral philosophies that came later, uh, in, in particular moral sense philosophy. So that was, that was the first book. Uh, and then the second book, I got really interested in the, the way that Americans have pictured and used pilgrims and Puritans from the beginning all the way to the present day. Like what role do they play and stories we tell about America, and stories we tell about the United States, and why do they play that role? So, so the second book I wrote, which just came out this year, is is called "City on a Hill: A History of American Exceptionalism," and it's really about about that topic. 
you know, Emma, it's really, it's really, I've always been fascinated by the fact that, um, and I think you kind of mentioned this a little bit, it seems like your sort of body of work touches in so many facets. So, you know, you talk about a little bit of history, there is language, um, there's poetry, there's literature, and, um, and, and so I'm, I'm wondering if it might be helpful for you to just um, share how you curated your educational path to arrive there. So we know you grew up around on a college campus at Notre Dame and were exposed to books and reading really early. How did you go on to curate that journey? Yeah, so um, there's two things that really drop. So I, I think of each discipline as sort of drawn by a particular aspect of the glory of God. So uh, thinking, you know, you guys talked with Francis Sue and 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 the sort of wonder and amazement of patterns and numbers that that always drew him uh, into mathematics. And for me, it has always been just amazing to think about words and how they work. Um, I've just always been drawn to the f- the fascinating way that they can layer meanings, uh, the arrangement of words, the rearrangement of words to span all, all to, to to create all different kinds of meanings. Uh, so so early on, I was drawn to poetry in particular, and I went to graduate school to do poetry, basically to uh, study 20th century poetry and literary theory because I was super interested in interpretation and poetry and poetics and how that worked. Um, and in order to do American Lit at Northwestern, uh, you had to read basically all of American Lit. There was a big list, a big selection, and it started with colonial American Lit. And so I started reading the Puritans and I got really fascinated by the Puritans and their theology and the way it was working. And I had this wonderful advisor, Julia Stern, um, and she said to me at one point, you know, you should really study and write about the Puritans because they're not neurotic to you. Um, so, uh, they're not totally crazy to you. And I thought, well, that is true. There's something about the Puritans that actually, uh, is in keeping with a lot of the traditions I was raised with. I was raised in reformed religion. I went to Calvin college, uh, you know, which is named for John Calvin. So there was a lot sort of, of, of connections to make as well. And I, and I did get fascinated by the, the role that they were playing, but also what they were saying. So I ended up, writing a dissertation on the Puritans, which was more historically based uh, than doing the, the work on poetry. Now I'm back to doing poetry these days. So I'm sort of always interested in these these facets of language, words, stories, uh, and how they take shape. And is there is there a one area or form of writing that you find you're most passionate about, or do you really mm-hmm. just sort of move easily in between all different forms. I find that I'm most passionate about whatever I'm doing most recently. (laughs) So uh, right now, most recently I'm studying and teaching a lot about poetry again, which I just love. Mm. Um, But, you know, when I think, when I think about um, the way the work fits together more generally, I'm interested in the way uh, two, two things. One, the way that all of us tell stories and navigate our way through this world with stories. So, I mean, there's, you know, all this talk about crisis in the humanities and stuff, and there's crisis in the humanities of a sort in terms of enrollments and, and so on. But, I mean, the humanities are named the humanities for a reason, and <laughs> they're never going to go away because we are all sort of embedded in stories. We all tell stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the study of stories in and of itself is never going to go away. Uh, so I'm not that concerned about the long-term stability of the humanities. Um, 
But lately, I've been really especially drawn to the close reading possibilities of really tight, small um, poems, like sonnets and so on, mm-hmm. and how just a few words, well-placed, can can really um, move you or draw you into a whole different perspective. Uh, and so I've been doing more of that work recently. Mm-hmm. I always find with poetry, uh, there is a sense of rhythm. So the few times I've, I've had a chance to hear you read a poem... <laughs> I'm always like drawn in just by the pacing and and just and the tonality of how you're reading the poem and this idea of slowing down and paying mm. attention to words and really listening to them and making sense of them. What, what, why do you think that's important when we're really interrogating poems? Well, well, when it comes to poetry, I think a lot of us, um, there's a lot of people who are afraid of poetry because they think it's too difficult yeah. or it's got I'm, a meaning. I'm, I'm that, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's got, it's, it's, it's got a meaning that you, you were never given the key to discover. And so it's just a locked box and, and there it sits. Um, you know, I think it's important to approach poetry, first of all, as sort of a thing that draws us in. And it may be that the thing that draws you in is not at all meaning. It may be the sound of the thing. And so mm-hmm. for me, for example, I love, totally love Hopkins poetry. I mean, he's one of my favorite poets. He's very difficult for an average reader to read a poem of his. He's like, what is he saying? And yet his poems are beautiful first and foremost. And it's because they're beautiful that we want to know what he's saying and how he's saying it. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you permit me, I can just give you a quick, quick, um, demonstration yes, so you know he's got this poem as king kingfishers catch fire and this is one of those things i just love what he does with words so this is one of those poems where he is saying basically the point of this poem is he's saying that we are what we do that actions define us that justice for example doesn't exist in the abstract justice only exists in the action of doing justice and so for at one point he says i say more the just man justices so he turns that word into a verb uh, that's the justice only exists as a verb. It is the action of doing justice is the only way in which mm-hmm. justice exists. Uh, but to get at that, at the beginning of the poem, he says, um, this is just the first four lines, as kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame, as tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring, like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. And you read that and you think, so what now? Uh, <laughs> uh, but at, at the, on the other hand, you read that and you think, boy, that's kind of lovely. Um, and the other thing that he's doing there is he's making the sound of the thing that he's talking about. So I'll just real quick again. So he's talking about stones that are dropped into an empty well and, and are echoing. Uh, and he says, that's what a stone is. It's making the echo is, is what a stone is. And so you can hear that echo as he, as he makes the sentence. So this is what he says. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. You can almost hear it ringing down into the well. And then he's talking about plucking strings, and you can hear that as he's talking about it. So he says, like each tucked string tells, you can hear him plucking strings there. And then my favorite is he talks about a bell exists only in the ringing of the bell. A bell is not an abstract thing. It exists in the ringing of the bell. And so if you picture a big church bell with a big tongue on it, he makes the sound of it gonging back and forth. So he says, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. You hear it ring three times in that, in those lines. Anyway, these are the kinds uh, of things I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been doing. Like, these are the kinds of things I love. <laughs> I, I, I bet your students just like marvel and are in awe when they um, sort of arrive at that point, like I am right now, just in hearing you sort of break down that poem, feeling like, 
oh, I think I can get this. I think this is this is a lot more accessible than than yeah. it might look you on know, the and, surface. And some of the you know some of the things poets do. I mean, others do too. Storytellers and and so on do too. But they they mess with words in order to draw your attention to them and how they work. So even just to think about, for example, the the first line, the super simple line of of Cummings' poem. Uh, I thank you, God, for most of this amazing day. That line sounds super simple. We get it and so on. At the same time, it still still sounds kind of poetic because it's kind of weird. We don't really say that, right? We don't go around saying, I thank you, God, for most of this amazing day. We might say for this most amazing day, but not for most of this amazing day. So why does he change the order there? And what's at mm-hmm. stake? Well, most emphasizes the word that comes after. And so when he says, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, he is in the first line of that poem, bringing you to focus on the word this and the and the presentness of this day. It's this particular day that's so amazing. It's most this, right? It's mm-hmm. right here in front of you. So I thank you, God, for most this amazing day is how that poem begins. So I have now two questions based on what you just said. And the first is I've, I've learned quite a bit from your wife, Kristen, who's a linguist about language mm-hmm. norms and the enforcement of, you know, in some ways, arbitrary norms that can also be uh, uses and exertions of power. But it struck me in talking with Kristen that in poetry and in song, we as a society and a culture most allow these violations of ordinary language norms. And so I've been puzzling that why is it the case that that poets and songwriters can get away with it in this sense. So that's one question. And then the other one, which I think might be related, uh, is it strikes me that you're uh, talking now uh, in between, you're at the intersection of an artist, and I suppose I sometimes masquerade as a political philosopher. And (laughs) poetry strikes me as both, right, in many ways. Uh So um, uh, maybe talk a bit about the intersection of of art and philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, for example, um, one of the ways that that intersection came about was, um, so I've always been interested in um, theology and philosophy. I was a philosophy major in college. Um, And, and the question is, okay, well, why not just philosophy? Why poetry in addition to philosophy? I mean, if philosophy can give you the propositions, if philosophy can teach you what you need to know, why do you need poetry at all? <laughs> and I think um, I think what poetry does is it's it's not so it it kind of reminds us that we are more than rational beings, uh, and that to be moved into something is just as important as to understand it. Uh, but even to understand it requires oftentimes being moved by something. Um, and so I think I think one of the things that poetry is very good at is both testing uh, philosophical ideas but also um, moving us either to accept them or to challenge them by rephrasing them and, and challenging even the sort of propositional structure of, of words and language and syntax. That's really interesting. Could you maybe also talk a little bit about this? Uh, you have a new podcast um, yeah. called Poetry for All. And um, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, one, you get to actually read poems on this podcast. And so as a listener, you know, with them on my walk or morning jog, like I'm listening to you mm-hmm. read a poem. But then you also take some time to sort of break it down or attach meaning to it. And, um, and it's, I think, also like a really nice way to give people access to poetry because I think we've talked about how sometimes you know poems can feel very intimidating but when I hear you talk about how um, 
that, that, that there are so many ways to get into um, understanding a poem that even just something as simple as like the, the tone of the poem can, can be a way for you to access the poem. Uh, I feel like this podcast is one step to doing that. So can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think there's two things behind that, that podcast. And it's kind of funny to be talking so much about poetry because so much of my research has not been about poetry. <laughs> I mean, so much of my writing and research has basically been a, a form of history. Uh, and so I, it is actually very fun for me to get back to poetry, which was one of my first loves. Um, and this podcast is really meant for a broad audience. It's, it's meant for the people who are afraid of poetry. It's meant for the people who always thought that's not for me. Uh, and so we read a poem and we just kind of talk about how it works and why, what, 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 what we love about it and why we think it's great. And then we read the poem again and it's a short 15 minute thing. And, and one of the things about that podcast that I love, and it's part of what I love about teaching in general, but also I think part of what I have been trying to work my way into as a scholar, is that it's a way of reaching those who are not already invested in the subject or the discipline or the major. So my favorite classes to teach and my favorite kind of work to do is to try to bring the importance of the humanities or of English or of poetry or whatever to people who don't typically um, who are not English majors, who don't typically read poems, who, who don't typically think about the humanities. And I, th I think that sort of every discipline needs its translator and, and English has plenty, every discipline has plenty. Um, and I'm not sure I'll ever be that good at it, but it is one of the things that I aspire to do and to be is to is someone who can actually bring what we're doing in the humanities to, to people who never think about the humanities at all. Mm. Um, so I have another question about poetry and poetic interpretation and yeah. how do you, how do you guard against, uh, poem and, uh, how do you guard against poetic interpretation collapsing into relativism or how do you adjudicate what is a good and bad poem or what is a good and bad interpretation of a poem? Mm. And that is on my mind, I, mean, I kind of hesitate to confess this, but in, in my COVID coping moment, I've, return to, uh, you know, a bunch of 80s music and beyond. And I stumbled upon <laughs> the long lost 80s glam rock bands like Poison. And when I listened to some of the music, it just doesn't make any sense. And I realized I never <laughs> knew that, right? And uh, yeah. that's long in my childhood. And uh, But so surely there has to be a way to say that's nonsense or that's good or that's bad. But how yes. do we Yes. I think that there one of the things that haunts the humanities is the sense that um, – all you do is read a text and say whatever you want about it. And that's just not true. <laughs> uh, and so uh, there's a couple of things. So, so basically the, 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 the root of it is persuasion. Have I persuaded you that this is a good reading of the poem? If I haven't persuaded mm -hmm. you, then I haven't persuaded you. But then the question becomes, well, how do you persuade someone that this is a good reading of a poem or a story or a novel or whatever we're looking at? Um, and it turns out that we do have things we call evidence. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, and the evidence is the words themselves, the text. Are you actually using the text and saying about the text things that make sense of the text and help us understand the text itself? Uh, and so, I mean, I sit as a reviewer, I review scholarly articles uh, for journals, I review manuscripts for presses. Uh, and if they don't convince me because they haven't used enough textual evidence or they're saying things about the text without quoting the text, without showing me how the text is actually working, without actually using the thing we call evidence, 
Then I say, this is, this is no good. This is, you're, you're making things up. Uh, and so we are always checking each other. And, you know, especially as, as a lot of early American work um, is also a kind of um, historicist method. And mine is definitely that too. And so a lot of us, myself included, go to archives as well. And what we find at archives is more text, more evidence, quotes, letters, um, and so these are the things we bring forward and say, this is the reason why I think you should read the text this way, because here's all this textual evidence to convince you. Mm. Ibram, thank you so much for sharing a lot on um, your passion with poetry. And I'm so glad you're sort of tapping into that now uh, even more. But I'd like to take you back a few um, yeah. steps to your research and uh, your research on early American literature and religion and I mean, I've always been fascinated hearing you talk about the Puritans and, and just even like finding ways to recontextualize it for today and why it's important that we, uh, we look to history. So uh, why is it important for us to, 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 to look back to the Puritans and to American literature and history? Today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, the second book, the one that just came out, is, is very much about um, the fact that we have always done that. <laughs> In American culture, there's so many stories that are based upon the pilgrims coming here. Uh, and and some of these stories are quite troubling because of what they don't account for or don't discuss, uh, or why they look to the pilgrims and not to others um, in order to write stories about America. Um, and oftentimes, uh, stories about the pilgrims and the Puritans will get things wrong about them. Um, and so I think what's important to realize is that we use narratives of the past in order to orient ourselves in the present. Uh, and so we're always telling these kinds of stories. The, the history does not go away. Uh, and that's why it's important to get history right. Um, and so in my first book, um, it was very much bent on understanding the uh, 17th century Puritans in their own light, in their own words, in their own culture and context. And in particular, I was interested in, um, you know, I came to them thinking of them the way that they have been caricatured as sort of very intellectual, very rigorous, very unemotional, very stern uh, sorts of beings. Uh, but as I was reading their texts, I kept coming across all kinds of emotional <laughs> outpourings. Uh, and so I was very curious as to why those were there and what they were doing. And the more you look into it, the more you realize that Puritanism, for all of its um, creeds and catechisms, its logic, its theology, is very much a religion of the heart. Um, and I was very interested in particular in the way that that shaped their sense of community. Uh, and so having a heart for others and and which others, you know, and, and so as I got into studying that, um, I sort of uncovered both the richness of their sense of sympathy, but also its limits uh, and, and the way in which it kind of served as a double-edged sword to uh, you know, prevent sympathy for certain kinds of people or uh, cut people out of the community, uh, and so I was I was very interested in the, in the role of sympathy and and trying to write a kind of mm. prehistory because a lot of people trace back the idea of sympathy to 18th century moral sense philosophy, and here it already was in 17th century Calvinist theology. So I wanted to do that kind of prehistory of sympathy there. Mm. This raises a puzzle for me, though, because a moment ago we were talking about how the account of poetry depends upon persuasion. And really, history works in similar ways, evidentiary persuasion and narrative accounts. But all of those also depend upon the baseline receptivity of the hearer. <laughs> and 
and the subjective biases that audiences bring to mm. being persuaded. Uh, and certainly in, in your current book, especially, you've waded into some vast and current controversies about yes. how we understand American yes. history. And so much of that is is uh, informed by the subjective biases of people who are already predisposed to hear a certain account. Mm. So how do, you, how do you struggle through that? challenge. It is a struggle, I will say. Uh, I mean, I think there's no shortage of people who want to believe what they want to believe about the past. And if a historian comes along and says, but actually, they say, well, you know, you have your truth, I have mine, uh, or whatever, right? They, they discount it. Um, I mean, I think part of a larger problem is how do you trust expertise? I think there's a, that's a larger issue going on. Um, and, and thinking of historians as experts and that's tied into thinking, you know, there's a, there's a kind of cultural moment here of thinking of any scholar as a person with an agenda and therefore discounting their expertise or their findings. Um, and so there's all kinds of things that have to be navigated. I, I, you know, I could put the information out there and I try to reach out and persuade people of what I know to be true. Um, but, you know, and, and I also try to listen. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's not up to me. I mean, at the end of the day, whether I've persuaded someone or not uh, is not ultimately under my control. Uh, and so I just simply do the work and leave it, leave it in other hands. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that really galvanized me in the second project that I don't usually speak too publicly about, but really was a driving factor, was a, a concern about the way that the nation has become a kind of idol for a lot of Christians. Um, and so I wrote a book about American exceptionalism, in particular about the way the phrase city on a hill, which really comes from the Sermon on the Mount, which is much older than the United States, uh, <laughs> got applied to the United States. And and what it what it tells us about a nation, that, that a phrase from the Sermon on the Mount might be applied to a nation, um, and what it tells us about... Uh, Christian Christian thinking that endorses that, um, it got me worried about the state of the church in America uh, to think of itself as, in a certain sense, um, uh, worshiping the nation instead of Christ. <laughs> There's a lot there to unpack. Yeah. Um, um, something you'd said earlier about um, your inability to control what the viewer or the listener takes away from a body of work um, resonates with a lot of what we do in design. So when, when we create and messages or pieces of communication, uh, whereas I think we're aware that um, we are in that moment holding a lot of power and responsibility to either persuade or convince or educate, we also realize the limitation um, that comes with um, how it might be interpreted. And, and so I just, I guess, I was thinking about uh, what are some, general like broad strokes that um, someone might want to consider if they were to attempt to make to get a sense of understanding of history and um, and sort of attempt to maybe craft a narrative or a way to understand some of these complex ideas what, what would you suggest um, an approach they might take to doing that bearing in mind maybe they're not an academic but yeah. just a lay person <laughs> yeah right I mean I think it's important to to I mean, one of the things we teach a lot of in the humanities is uh, how to assess your sources. 
um, which sources to trust and why. And so if you've got a book about the American Revolution that has like seven footnotes in it, it may not be the most accurate account of the American Revolution, and it may not actually have the evidence that the rest of us uh, think is necessary. On the other hand, of course, we can't expect every lay reader to read a book with 80 pages of, of footnotes. Right. Uh, and so there has to be a kind of balance there. And that's why I think there are, it is important to find folks who are, who are doing the important work of being accurate, but also translating to a broader audience. Um, but I think that it's a matter of, of doing due diligence as to where is this person coming from? Uh, mm -hmm. And so, uh, and, 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 what is the evidence they're actually using to back up their points? Uh, and can I actually find some of that evidence myself? And so, for example, if, if you see poll quotes from the founders, which you'll see in a lot of books, it's actually super easy to go check. Uh, you put mm -hmm. that quote in Google, and it turns <laughs> out that almost all of the founders' writings are available online, and you can see whether it's been pulled out of context. It's not that hard. Uh, and so you could you could do a little of the basic sort of historical work yourself without being a historian. Well, I wonder if we can uh, go back to your own experience. And I was thinking uh, you grew up at Notre Dame, went to college at Calvin, uh, two very Christian places, and then graduate school at Northwestern and now teaching at Wash U, two, very, uh, two places that are not Christian in any sense. <laughs> And so what has been your experience as a, as a Christian graduate student and now faculty member in, in places that are not Christian? And how have you navigated that, that challenge? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think for me, there was never a chance or uh, an option to hide so much. When you go to a place uh, named for a 16th century reformer, <laughs> Uh, and that's on your CV and you're applying to grad school and you're applying for jobs, it's kind of hard not to think something about my background, you know? Uh, and so for me, I, I never really tried to hide. Um, and I never really needed to. I mean, I, I have been fortunate, I guess, uh, or, or not. I mean, I don't know how broadly this is true, but for me at Northwestern, I, I first taught at Trinity University in San Antonio, here at Wash U in St. Louis. I mean, nobody has come after me. Nobody's cared. Nobody has, you know, it's, it's not been a, a problem. Uh, and if anything, I think that the, the sort of now 30 year old postmodernism uh, of, of the humanities has made it all the more acceptable to be religious uh, within the humanities, just because everybody's coming from their own perspective. And that's part of the point of postmodernism. Mm. Uh, and so you can't, you can't sort of say, well, your religious background is not accepted here. Um, and the other thing that's happened is, of course, there's been a huge movement towards under re-understanding religion and religious believers and religious practitioners in a whole bunch of humanities fields, philosophy, English history, and so forth. Um, it's come under one general name called post-secularism, but it goes by secular studies and so on. So it goes by a lot of different names. But the, the gist of it is we, could, we can't treat religion as a mask for something else. Mm. Um, and uh and, and genuine religious people are all around us. And one of the things that sort of galvanized this movement was 9-11, when, when all the sort of regular Enlightenment secularization narratives seemed to be thrown out the window. And we were reminded that very religious people still very much exist all over the world, and maybe we should understand them. Uh, and so, you know, I think in the universities today, at least uh, where I have been, there, there's just 
people are interested. People are curious. People are um, friendly. People, there's no, there's no, um, there's no animosity towards mm-hmm. my faith, at least among the colleagues that I have known. Mm. It's interesting. You mentioned 9-11. We're recording this on the 19th. 19- I know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me just sort of scrolling through reflections on this day uh, is how uh, we, I mean, everything you said makes sense to me. And yet so much of the liturgical remembrances are mm. deliberately framed uh, in a non-transcendent way. So we, we remember this solemn day or we come together, but they're, uh, they don't actually pull to, um, they're more of the thoughts than the prayers, for example, right? Yeah. And, and how do we think about that dimension of what we've experienced since 9-11? Yeah, I mean, that's getting into a larger question about how national leaders can frame for a pluralist nation, um, you know, memorials, remembrances, and profound thoughts. Um, uh, And so, you know, I think there's a lot to be said one way or the other, but I think it it doesn't seem wrong to me uh, for a nation to frame things, um, at least in a non-transcendent way, but in ways that make possible, uh, people's own transcendent understandings and remembrances of, of an, of an event. Um, that, that doesn't seem necessarily wrong to me. (laughs) Um, but I don't know, I haven't looked at the specific things you have in mind, so I I don't, I can't really speak too much to, to any of that, that that's going on. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I just think for me in the university as a Christian, I mean, I've never been um, brazen about it, I guess uh, you might say. I've never been uh, pushy about it. So there's that. Uh, I have deep respect for my secular colleagues, and I try to show that. Um, And I think that the main tensions for me are all internal rather than external, which is to say, I do find it um, difficult to be a Christian in academia only because what Christianity teaches me and what academia wants from me are not necessarily the same thing. So, uh, so, you know, I have a certain amount of ambition. Uh, I have a certain, you know, what, one of the things when I first went into, to academia, I had this strange thought that, you know, oh, I want to demonstrate that Christians can be excellent at anything, uh, including intellectual work. When it was, that was not a good thought for a couple of different reasons. First of all, there are already excellent Christians all over the academy, so I am not needed in that sense. <laughs> uh, I don't need to be a hero, uh, and and it was it was good to discover that I am not needed uh, in in that in that regard. But the other thing is that it does pr- give you this sort of hero complex that is also actually operating precisely on the conditions that you maybe should be challenging, which is getting ahead, getting prestige, getting honors. Uh, and and basically assessing the worth of what you do on the basis of those things. Uh, and I think that's a dangerous road to go down uh, and also very difficult to avoid. Uh, and so uh, I have tried, and this is, I'm just preaching to myself here, but uh, I, I, I do try to do the very best work that I can, scholarship, writing, and teaching, uh, and service and engagement with students and so forth, and at the same time, try to just leave the outcome of all of that uh, in God's hands, because it's really not up to me uh, what happens to it. And I don't, the worth of it is not uh, measured by those things, by by glitter on the counter, <laughs> awards and whatnot. Uh, 
And so, uh, you know, and I find this doubly difficult when you begin to enter into any attempt to bring things to a broader audience, because so much of that asks of you, requires of you uh, self-promotion, you know, on social media and other things. And, you know, I'm from a tradition that that views self-promotion very skeptically. (laughs) Uh, You know, the the tradition I come from is all about self-denial, not (laughs) self-promotion. Uh, and so I have found this ongoing internal tension about how to be in academia, how to strive for excellence and how to not care really about the outcome of it. Uh, that, that's a kind of ongoing, uh, tension that I, that I struggle with. Well, since you brought up self-promotion, I'm going to end our time together with a quote from my own book. Um, <laughs> I saw that coming. Incredibly crass of me, uh, except that Tim Keller wrote this line, so I'm actually just promoting him. Uh, but it does, I was thinking of this, this line as we were talking, Dan, I, I want to close here uh, because it relates to what you've shared with us. It relates to poetry. It relates to narrative. And I think in a way that, really reinforces the importance of uh, of the work we're all doing, but particularly the work uh, that you do at the intersection of, of narrative and poetry. Uh, so Tim writes, uh, we chose stories knowing that narrative provides a kind of surplus of meaning, revealing and enriching our understanding in ways that a list of propositions, however clear, cannot. The writer Flannery O'Connor put it this way, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way, and it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. And as I listened to you in, this, in our time together, it was a, it was a great reminder of, of why this is all so important to, as you said earlier, to us as human beings, uh, as well as scholars. So thank you so much for... Mm us and, and being with us. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And John, you read that quote really well. I, I just felt like, you know, you were ex- exuding some of Abram's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> poetic. <laughs> thank you so much, right. Abram. For, for thank being you here both. It's, it's lovely to be here.